Our text this morning is Mark chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 24. Uh, the Pew Bible uh, has it in there. It's on page 843. I'd encourage you to uh, follow along in your Pew Bible or your own personal Bible, uh, your device, or however you have God's Word in front of you, that you don't just hear me say it, but you read it like the Bereans, hear the gospel, receive it with all readiness, and also examine the Scripture to see if it's true. So many passages of Scripture uh, contain in them uh, strong notes of hope, but also there's, there's, there's constantly placed before us difficulties in the passages, cultural difficulties, uh, differences in the day of Jesus from today, differences in the way that they dealt with people, differences in the words and the language that they used. Keep in mind that the English version that we read is a translation, and a translation is necessarily an interpretation of Scripture. Uh, that it's not simply a word-for-word transliteration of what was written, but it is where scholars and, and godly men and women would, would take the text and say, we want to faithfully put in English that which was written in Greek, or in the case of the Old Testament, Hebrew, or in some rare cases, Aramaic. Uh, we, we want it to be a faithful translation, but, but so many things come to us through the difficulty of time and language. And you're going to find one of those in the text here today. And it's a passage, when you read it, I will tell you right now, if you're honest, you're going to go, Jesus, why, um, what are you doing? It's difficult. It's tough. It doesn't, it doesn't sit well with our ears and our sensibilities. But hopefully we will be honest and faithfully uh, look at it. That We would not uh, just dismiss it and saying, well, I'm a Christian, so it must be this. But we would examine it and we would see that, indeed, uh, Jesus is being a wondrous teacher, Lord, shepherd, and savior. And we also need to see in each text uh, the hope, not only for those who heard the words of Jesus out of his mouth, but a hope for us today uh, who hear it read, preached, and watch it lived out. This is God's word. Let's read it together. I'll read aloud and encourage you to follow along. And from there, remember he was in the region of Galilee, from there he arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house And he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, and she came and she fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went. She went home. And she found that the child was lying in the bed, and the demon was gone. Lord, Thank you for this text of history, this text of hope, this text before us for examination today. Lord, keep us from prideful hearts where we would sit in judgment of the text, where we would sit to impose our desires upon it or interpret it the way that we want it to be. But Lord, may we hear you. May we understand what you are teaching us in your word for your glory. Father, thank you for the privilege and the blessing of this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We see Jesus and the disciples, his apostles. Uh, by all accounts, this would have been another opportunity uh, for them to take a moment for a retreat, a moment for them to get away just a little bit. This idea of, of going into this region of Tyre and Sidon, we're going to talk a little bit about that, this, this excursion outside of traditionally Jewish territory into the region of the Gentiles, going into Tyre and Sidon and entering into a house and not wanting anyone to know. Remember this, this is a time of great popularity in the ministry of Jesus. And he was wanting to step away from the crowds just a bit. Why? Not for selfish indulgence. I do believe that it was, as we saw before, a time that he could be with. The disciples could get some rest. Remember, they were having even difficulty finding time to eat. They were ministering to so many but also that they would be able to spend some time where Jesus could invest with these disciples, particularly in ministry together. And it's ministry in a home. And, and it's really a remarkable thing that we see in Mark, the recurrence of the, the use of homes. That he would enter into a home, and in a home, Jesus would be teaching, and they would find the roof unthatched and a, and a boy lowered down that he would be able to minister and to teach uh, for that crippled boy coming into his presence to forgive him of his sins and to heal his body. We see homes playing very prominently. We saw homes where, uh, where Peter's mother-in-law was, was healed and taken care of, and here he goes into this home in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This home of, of by all accounts, would have been a Gentile home. Uh, not a, a, a home that was, was kept according to, to Jewish law and custom. We find this account, and you might want to put your thumb in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 is a parallel account of this. That's a wonderful thing that you have in each of the, uh, the Gospels, is each Gospel writer, in a way that absolutely is consistent with one another, teaches many of the same events. And as they teach these events, they bring out other details. It'd be like when you get home and over lunch you're recapping things that happened in worship and in Sunday school today, and perhaps you're in one Sunday school class and your children in another, and then in worship together, and, and you would account what do you remember, what did you see, and the impressions that were made by different perspectives in the service. And we find Mark, we find Matthew speaking, they don't contradict each other, they just bring out different details in this particular event. But Matthew clearly presents this, and, and Mark, uh, to a lesser degree, as an event of great faith. Matter of fact, Matthew concludes this passage by speaking to the woman and commending her particularly. Here, Mark emphasizes that Jesus is talking about the statement that she made, and Matthew emphasizes that Jesus in that discussion brings out the great faith that this Gentile woman had in coming to Jesus. He's no longer in Galilee. He's journeyed out for the very first time uh, to a, a region in Gentile uh, territory. He's gone northwest to the coast, the Mediterranean coast, Gentile territory, the region of Tyre and Sidon. And this marks the end of what has been a fairly lengthy Galilean ministry of Jesus. It's very significant that the way Mark has presented this. Remember, at the, the culmination, the conclusion of his Galilean ministry, where he was ministering in, in a region that was very Jewish in its nature, that it was the Jewish leaders that came along and they were criticizing his Jewishness, his hand-washing, his, uh, his defilement, these types of things. And he was speaking uh, about how they really had it backwards. The defilement doesn't come from the outside, it's from out of the heart. Uh, we, we see uh, a lot of implications about a lack of faith of, of the leadership in that day. And now Jesus has taken his disciples and they've walked on to Gentile land. 
Something you just didn't do. You didn't do unless you go back to the Old Testament and you walked on the Gentile land to occupy the land, to take it, to make it yours. We find a, uh, a woman who comes, a woman showing great faith and a humble approach to Jesus. And she's very persistent in pursuing the Savior. And I believe that Mark sets this in such great juxtaposition against the lack of faith that we saw just a chapter before. And and what we see is Jesus using a Gentile woman in the very same way that we see it in John chapter 4. You remember John chapter 4? He encounters the woman at the well. What kind of woman was it at the well? A Samaritan woman, right? In, in many ways, you know, if, to be worse than a Gentile would have been to be a Samaritan. That would be those who intermarried, kind of a, a mixed blood kind of, kind of thing that they would be accused of being half-breeds uh, by uh, many in that day. The Samaritan woman at the well, and, and she becomes an amazing evangelist because of her encounter with Jesus. She's the one that goes and tells all those in her region, I want you to meet this man who knows everything about me. And the clear implication of what she was teaching is this, this fellow knew that I've been married multiple times and now I'm living with a man and he's not my husband. But you know what? He loves me anyway. The Samaritan woman would become this great evangelist and here this Gentile woman would be a picture of faith in front of his disciples. Now there's no denying the commonality of these two. Jesus is using these two women. Now, ladies, I I don't speak in this way to commend the way it was in that day, but we need to understand that in the day of Jesus, that in in most circumstances, women were treated a little better than possession. Uh, There was a, a saying of the rabbis in that day, better to try to teach a mule than try to teach a woman. Guys, you didn't even let me get out the warning, Rex. He is awful brave when Betty's not sitting next to him. I'm just saying. But it's undeniable that we see and we must see in, with, with interpretational integrity that Jesus, that Jesus, in contrast to many of the rabbis of the day, that he elevates the social and the religious importance, the status of women. He was saying, you, you got this wrong. And he reaches out and he ministers in such a significant way. And here this woman stands as a commendation of faith. So now some points to consider um, as we look at this text. This woman comes to Jesus in the house, interrupts him in this moment when he's spending time with his disciples. He didn't want anybody to know he was there, yet we see he couldn't be hidden. He was popular. Folks were seeking him out. His fame had had traveled to this region. And so this woman uh, came to him and, and said, my, my daughter, my little daughter has an unclean spirit, is demon-possessed. And she fell down at his feet and she begged Jesus to do something about it. Now, have you ever thought about the way Jesus responds to men and women when they come to him? Not just in this case, but several cases. We think about the, the little boy, as I mentioned earlier, was lowered down from the roof and right there in front of Jesus, right? What, what was his and his friend's desire right off the bat? Jesus, heal him. He, he's crippled. We had to... We had to risk getting him up on the roof and lowering him down. And Jesus looks and says, your sins are forgiven. Turns it into a teaching moment. And he speaks about the boy's true need. It's a a difficult moment for the boy. The boy didn't just immediately get answered the request that he is asking by his presence. Jesus spends some time with him. 
Or have you ever thought about the lawyer that approached Jesus and in Luke chapter 10, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus talks about the first and the second greatest commandments. Love your neighbors yourself being the second. The, uh, the lawyer, uh, this was a, a, a religious uh, law expert uh, talking to Jesus about wanting to wrangle over the whole idea of who is my neighbor. But, but think about that question. Somebody came up to Jesus and says, what must I do uh, to earn eternal life? And, and, and rather than just say, hey, it's fantastic that you asked. I'm glad that you asked. I'm glad that you're curious. Let's sit down and talk about this. Do you want to pray this prayer right now? Did Jesus spend some time? And he unpacks. And sometimes Jesus can be a little difficult. I, I don't say that in a, in, a, in a degrading way. I don't say that in a way to imply at all that Jesus is doing something wrong. But, but I believe Jesus uh, can deal with people with a slow and deliberate hand. We also think about the um, Mark chapter 10 text that we haven't gotten to just yet. It says that Jesus was setting out on a journey and a man came up and he knelt down before him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I love that question, by the way. People encounter me on the street. I'm going to rejoice in getting that question. Jesus answers him, says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Again, bit of a slow hand, a bit of a deliberate uh, approach to this man. And then he asks him, he says, well, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And the man said to him, Jesus, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him and says, but you lack one thing, go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. We see the very discouraging moment says that he's disheartened by that saying and he walks away sorrowful for he has great compassion, great, great possessions. You know, you read passages like that and the one that we're addressing today and we have to ask, why does Jesus respond the way he does? This man comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's curious, he's interested, he's asking the question. Jesus talks to him about the nature of the law that indeed, if you keep the law perfectly, then you have eternal life because you have nothing about which to be condemned, but all have sinned and fall short. And this man mistakenly says, I've done all that. Now, what that implies, at least, is that the man was a pretty decent fella, a pretty moral fella, a man of pretty good character. I've, I've had several occasions uh, in, in dealing with different churches and, and talking about reaching out into the community. And people are, will mention names and they'll mention families and say, oh, I would, I would love for this family to come to our church. Oh, they'd make such good church members. You know, talking about, oh, they're good folks. You know, they, they, they'd be great. You know, and they're so talented. They, they'd really have a lot to offer. And, and you know, they're, they're truths of that, <laughs> gifts and that sort of thing. Uh, but this idea that, that they would make great church members. This man, as I see this picture, would have to fall in that category. He's a good moral fella. He comes up, he talks to Jesus. He's, he's lived a good life. You know, he'd make a great church member, but, but Jesus goes straight to the heart and deals with him in a slow and a deliberate way. And in this situation, this woman comes and she asks a favor of Jesus. My little girl is racked in torment by a demon that has seized possession of her. And Jesus talks to her about children and dogs. Now, Matthew chapter 23, excuse me, Matthew 
uh, chapter 15, verse 23, where I told you to put your thumb. In the parallel account of this story, it says that immediately Jesus was quiet with her. He did not, he didn't respond. And it was at that time, too, that the disciples said, Lord, send her away, for she just keeps crying out after us. She was bothering them. And the disciples, bless their heart. Their, their approach, their, their answer was just, just send them away. I've had pastoral conversations like that. Pastors and elders, men and folks in ministry, who, who, who essentially will say, you know, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. <laughs> Moments. None recently. And that's what the disciples seem to be saying. Lord, this woman's getting in the way of our time here in this house. Let's just send her away. She just keeps crying out after us. So it says Jesus was silent, the Matthew passage does. Matthew passage also talks about uh, the disciples wanting to send her away. Uh, now, we need to understand that, that Jesus being silent is not Jesus ignoring the woman. Uh, Jesus does not send her off. He does not cast her away, even though the disciples have advised that he would do so. And then when he replies to her, this is what he says. Look at this text very deliberately in the, in the Mark passage. He says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I told you there's some difficulties in the text. And here you have a grieving mama. And you hear the words of Jesus. Now, one way that pastors tend to let Jesus off the hook, <laughs> let God off the hook with difficult passages, is, is they, will, they will make up some some nonsense about, well, in the Greek, it just means something completely different. You know, trusting in the fact that nobody else in the room has gone to the trouble to, to, to take Greek or Hebrew and, and learn it. Now, in this text, Jesus does literally use a diminutive form of that noun. He says little dogs. Guys, that, that's still in contemporary conversations, not going to make it a whole lot better. But, but he is distinguishing between this idea of those mongrels that would scavenge and eat waste throughout the streets and the little dogs that had just really within uh, that time period begun to be domesticated as pets. Um, and so he begins, he speaks about this, about the distinction between in the household, uh, the children and the little pets that are not children. Again, uh, a, a difficult passage to deal with. That, that softens it a bit, but still this idea, he's saying that some are children, but I'm going to have to put you in the dog category. And we need to honestly address it. So here's what Jesus is doing. And, 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 and I read this and prayed through it. I preached it before and struggled through it. I've, I've, I've listened to, uh, to countless uh, uh, men and teachers that I trust, uh, both from generations before and contemporary. And, and I believe uh, that the, this is, is a faithful understanding of what's going on, is that Jesus, in doing this, in dealing with this woman with a slow and a deliberate hand, is emphasizing her unworthiness. But there's a reason for that. He's emphasizing her unworthiness because that is an understanding we all need to have. We all need to come to Jesus with an understanding that we are not worthy of the attention and the love and the grace and the mercy of God. 
That's the foundational premise for the absolute necessity of the gospel. We need the gospel. We need the good news because the bad news is real. That's a good point for an amen there, Rex. Thank you. What Jesus is doing is he's bringing her to the end of herself. He's bringing her to that moment where she fully embraces what's going on here. You see, the gospel only makes sense in being that lavish, amazing grace of God when we understand how bad the bad news really is. When we understand the wretchedness of our sin. For we are not as the, that young man thought. He thought he had kept all of God's law. We are not as good as we deceive ourselves to think we are. That, that when we see the sin and wickedness of the world, we think about apart from God's common grace, I am absolutely capable of all of it. That any good that's in me is good that God is working through me. It is God who is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure is what Paul writes for us. Jesus, at this point, he's bringing this woman to the end of herself so that the only thing that she can do is plead for mercy. And he is explaining the very real nature of what is happening here historically. What is unfolding in front of them. How has the good news, the promise, how has this unfolded throughout history to this point? It has unfolded in the context of God's people. That God promised Abraham in, in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, He promised to him that he would be a blessing and he would be blessed. That God would raise up descendants from him and that that would be His chosen people. That the Jews were who Jesus came to. Now, it has never been the case that only those born of Abraham had the opportunity for the gospel. It was never the case. We, we see... We see Crystal examples before us as we read uh, through things like Rahab and Jericho, right? This, I mean, right out of Jericho comes one who would be in the lineage, the ancestry of Jesus. We see Ruth, the Moabitess, right? As she comes uh, in faithfulness to Naomi and she marries Boaz and she raises up the great-great-great-grandfather of David and indeed uh, the one who would uh, one day... Uh, whose line would contain Jesus. There's always been the case where those born outside of the line of Abraham. But we do see consistently and faithfully at this point that the good news and the promise was within the context of God's people, within the context of the Jews. And that's how the gospel has come. And we saw this promise. We saw this promise in the Old Testament, Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49.6, a, a great verse to look at um, maybe as uh, you prepare a lunch today. Isaiah 49.6 says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Right? Talking about the, 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 the Jews. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And to put a finer point on it in Romans 1.16... Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to those who believe to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is speaking about that special relationship that, that the gospel has to those who have been 
been brought up in faith like that. That's why Jesus was born and has done this ministry. And to this day, at this day, he then steps outside into the region of the Gentiles and he speaks in this way. He speaks difficult. He speaks in, in, in slow words to this woman, but helps her to understand and ask that question. If, if the Jews are the children, then why do you think? Why do you think that the food should be served to you? I want you to hear again what Jesus says there. Listen to it carefully and see if you don't find hope as I do. Verse 27, Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is right not to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Let the children be fed what? First. What what Jesus is speaking of is not a denial but he's speaking about an understanding. He's not speaking about, he is not saying you shall not get fed, but he is asking a question to draw out from the heart of this woman her understanding. He's bringing her to an end of herself and she pleads for mercy. Now Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, it describes this woman, as we see here in the Mark, as a Gentile, a Syrophoenician. Matthew describes her specifically as a woman of Canaan. Now, now consider this too, that the idea that this woman really, indeed, if you go back historically, she was among the people that were told to be wiped out. And the fact that she stands together as a, as a person who lives in the region of Canaan, uh, that her very existence is, a, is a, an evidence, a manifestation of, of God's preserving and keeping grace. He's, he has brought her to that point, and he has brought her to that point where she would hear about the work of Jesus and she would come to him. Now, what Jesus does not do here... What Jesus does not do, He doesn't look at her when she says, my daughter is possessed of a demon. He doesn't look at her and he say, hmm, tell me now, what did you do wrong? He doesn't, he doesn't condemn her because her, her daughter is having difficulty. He doesn't say, if you were a good mother, that demon would never have a chance on your daughter. If you were just raised her in the right kind of household, I bet this is just some sort of baggage because of your pagan ways and your, your heritage. He doesn't condemn her, but He listens to her. He asks and she presses. She pursues Jesus. And her petition is like that widow coming to the judge again and again. Or like that friend at midnight coming again and again. She is going to continue to come until she gets her answer. And he mentions this idea about the the, the children and the little pets. And then she hears those words. And she doesn't rebel against God's election of Israel. And she doesn't scream, this isn't fair. She doesn't get upset. She doesn't get offended. She doesn't say, hmm, well, I'm going to go find somebody else. She repeats her plea and she presses her case. John Calvin, in talking about this, he says, it was not the intent of our Savior to extinguish her faith. It was instead to wet her zeal, W-H-E-T, to wet her zeal, sharpen her zeal, and to inflame her passion. Jesus was drawing it out of her. And she says in verse 28, Yes, Lord, but don't even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that the children drop? Isn't it the case that they get to eat really at the same time? That the children, because they have such abundance, they drop the crumbs and don't even know it. And, and the pets under the table, they have this wonderful provision. Isn't that true, Jesus? She presses the case. She hears His words. She does not reject her place. She does not say, Lord, I'm better than that. 
In the same way that when we think about God's provision for us, we dare not ever approach him and say, well, I know that you came to save sinners, but that's kind of offensive you calling me a sinner. It's an understanding of who we are, a positional understanding of who we stand before God. And she's not disrespectful. She doesn't argue. What she really says is, yes, Lord, I understand it. Like Jacob, what, is, what does Jacob do? What does Jacob do when, when God changes his name and calls him Israel? What did he be doing all through the night? He wrestled with God. Wrestled with God. And basically, he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And this is such an incredible picture of our faith and our prayer lives that we would not let go of Jesus until we hear his answer. You know why I know this is good? Because he tells us to do it. He talks to us about the way that we pray. He talks about the way that we go to Him. That we are to go and to go and to go again. She fell at His feet. She was in utter desperation. It's a position of of full humility and full worship. A complete humility before Jesus. Oh, how different this was from those religious leaders who thought they had it all together. They thought that their lives were, were just fine and they were looking to find fault with Jesus. This woman knew that she could not make her little girl better. And she knew that Jesus was a Jew. She knew that she was a Gentile. She knew that this this was indeed uh, it would be it would be part of the promise. She had heard rumblings about all this, but she comes. She says, "I'm I'm not trying to be who I'm not, but I'm seeking you for who you are." And think about this: what an incredible thing happens here. You remember the the discussion last week about defilement. Defilement came by the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes thought it came from, from what you touched, where you walked, what you ate. And what has Jesus indeed done? He has gone into the region of the Gentiles. He has stomped in that dirt. It begins to cover that unclean land that, that, that a good, respectable Jew would not be a part of. He went and lodged in a house right there in the midst of that land. And here he is spending time and engaging this Gentile woman. This speaks about the lengths, the breadth to which our Savior will go, that the gospel, the gospel would be preached and understood by every tribe and tongue. And she finds her hope in the power and the compassion of Jesus. She presses because she knows he is able and he is willing. I ask you this morning, what is it that you doubt the most? Is it that the Lord is able or the Lord is willing? In your prayer life, what is it that that brings doubt as you come before the throne of grace? Is it that you don't think the Lord is able to do? Or is it that you doubt that He is not willing to do it? Where Where is the source of that doubt? This woman, when she came to the end of herself, she said, I have no hope, and I come pleading for my little girl. How many times have the disciples to this point heard, O ye of little faith? And the way Matthew describes this passage, they're challenged as they see Jesus, look at this Gentile woman, the woman they just told him to send away. And he says, O woman, great is your faith. I would encourage you to rejoice. Rejoice in knowing this is a Savior who is able. This is a Savior who is willing to deal with you according to your need, to help you to understand according to where you are, that you might know where you can be in Him and Him alone. And it says right there that the woman's faith was great. And she left that place by merely by his proclamation, go home, your daughter is well. And she journeyed home, and that's where she found her little girl, just as Jesus had promised. 
The demon gone, in matter of fact, and the, the verbs that are used there says gone never to return. Because of Jesus. And a mother whose, whose love for a daughter would not let the daughter go would press into Jesus and say, I will not let go until you bless me. Pray with me, Lord. Lord God, we, we thank you for this text. Father, we acknowledge that as we read your word, that there are those things that are difficult to understand. But we thank you, Lord, that your word provides such clarity as we bring it into context. Father, I pray that you would make us to be men and women of great faith. Lord, that we would not hear you as our master saying, O ye of little faith, that we would strive to grab a hold of you and not let go, Lord, to trust in you, full confidence in you, not only in your power, but in your love and compassion for us. We thank you, Father, that though we are sinners, words of condemnation, words of offense, words of great judgment. We are sinners, but in Christ Jesus, we are forgiven. And we are declared before the throne of heaven as righteous. Against the backdrop of so bleak a bad news, we know the glory of the gospel. Lord, may that be the joy that we take with us as we go forth this day in Jesus' name. Amen.